Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The shares of Bank of America are lower by three-tenths of a percent right now after reporting quarterly results. Here to tell us more about those results and the banking industry is Charles Peabody. He is the president of Portales Partners. Charles, always a pleasure. Give us the details when it comes to Bank of America and maybe just provide the context for how the bank is performing. Sure. Um well, it, it was a solid quarter, um, but like other banks, the reported earnings were probably higher than what we would call core earnings, as they included a number of unusual items. Two that can be called out was about a two cent share benefit from tax um, benefits and a one cent, um, you know, goose from reserve release. So that's what you're generally seeing is that the core earnings are coming in below the reported earnings, but I would say the core earnings are in line with with expectations. This are, are these the best core earnings we're likely to see in the cycle? They are, and, and I think that's why the stocks are reacting um, in a negative fashion to these what are on the surface strong reported numbers. Is is we're seeing um, a, what I would call low quality of earnings. Um, the earnings strength is coming from large trading gains, which is a low PE revenue source, and they're coming from reserve releases, which you know, investors aren't going to pay up for at the end of an economic cycle, and some unusual uh, accounting gains. So in that context, if you have a situation where interest rates are moving higher because of either a strengthening U.S. economy or increases from the Federal Reserve, that should help the net interest margin of the bank, no matter how the bank is really run. It, it will, and it has. Um, but what, what we're looking for at this point of the economic cycle is what I'd call the second derivative, the end-of-cycle dynamics. So take your comment about higher rates. Yes, it is going to help net interest margins and net interest income. But we're past what I would call peak optionality in terms of the benefits of higher rates. So, for example, um, back in 2016, Bank America would have seen about a $7 billion boost to their net interest income from a 100 basis point rise in interest rates. Today, that's about $3 billion. J.P. Morgan, in their call, Marion Lake, the CFO, said that their $1.7 billion last quarter would be material lower from a right, right rate hike, and that's down from $3 billion in 2016. So the, the optionality at the margin is becoming less and less favorable. Add to that is issues of credit card charge-offs. Are they rising? They are, and and you know they're rising. You know what the analysts are calling in a benign state, but they are rising, and that's the other um, end of cycle dynamic. Is usually you see cards lead other categories in terms of deterioration, and we are definitely seeing higher losses, although it's being coined in the in the um, phrase of you know normalization yes well that that's it's a nice word that's why that's why they get to use it uh, uh, lending against inflated asset values do you consider that to be a risk I, I do and and that that's more on the on the um, 
wealth management side and on the corporate side. So in wealth management, one of the drivers of revenues is what we call securities-based loans and jumbo mortgages. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see much more volatility in asset prices where certain assets' values could deteriorate literally overnight. And we saw that with the Steinhoff loan in the fourth quarter. We saw that more recently with Ruzal, um, the aluminum company in Russia, and how either geopolitical events or economic events can cause the value of those assets to change very rapidly. And yet banks have made significant loans against these inflated asset values. And as rates move higher, I think it's going to be tougher to sustain these asset values. Is it tougher for even experts to understand what's going on at large banks because there are so many unusual items that are reported on a quarterly basis? Yeah, this quarter was a very messy quarter because you had new accounting uh, adoptions that changed the values of equities, for example. You had tax benefits. You had loan loss reserve releases. Um, you, you had asset sale gains. There, are, there. It was a messy quarter, and that that has made it difficult, you know, uh, short term to to understand what is truly the core and underlying trends. Okay, so it seems to me that you're not just talking about the business at Bank of America, but at all major banks. Is that correct? That's correct. But but there are some themes. For example, Bank of America's revenues were up, you know, two and a half percent year over year. So we're seeing low single-digit revenue growth pretty much through all these big banks, except for J.P. Morgan, which had much, much stronger revenue growth. You're seeing reserve releases, you know, because of, of improvements in the energy portfolio and improvements in residential real estate. So there are some common themes. Expense control remains very tight. They're doing a great job on expenses. And then fee income remains weak outside of trading. And, and that's important because at the end of a cycle, you, you see a couple of things that, that says we're at the end of the cycle. On, on the trading front, you see a rotation from thick to equity as the driver of capital markets revenues. And you saw that in this quarter. Equity was very strong. Thick was a little weaker, although solid. And then on the, on the underwriting side, um, you see you know, a, a shift as well. So we're seeing all the typical signs of end of cycle dynamics. So just quickly, Charles, uh, all things being equal, if you aren't an investor in banks, should you just wait for a better time? I think so. I, I think right. we're in a topping process on the stocks in the first half of this year, and we'll enter a bear market. And these stocks, you know, a year and a half from now, two years from now, will be down 30 to 50% from their peaks. Thanks very much. Charles Peabody, always a pleasure. President of Portales Partners, talking about the U.S. banking industry. I'm Pim Fox. My co-host Lisa Abramowitz is off today. Joining me now is Brian Egger. He is our senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow him on Twitter at Breaking Call and Eldorado Resorts and the real estate company Gaming and Leisure Properties. They are teaming up to buy Carl Icahn's Tropicana Entertainment price tag $1.85 billion. Brian, why is Carl Icahn selling Tropicana Entertainment if it's such a good business. Well, Pim, remember that Carl Icahn has actually been selling his gaming interests uh, over time. 
Uh, he basically had owned Trump Entertainment Resorts and, and ceased the operations of the Trump Taj Mahal uh, back in 2016, sold that property in 2017. It's now reopening. So basically what this does is Carl Icahn gets a billion eight five in proceeds and ends up effectively divesting uh, his casino interests, which turns them over at El Dorado Resorts, which has the advantage of being able to get all these cost savings and synergies from doing this deal. Why are they able to cut costs when Carl Icahn is not? Well, it's basically because El Dorado has an existing base of operations, partly through the acquisition of Isle of Capri casinos last year. So with a larger base of operations, you can basically reduce combined corporate overhead, uh, get eventual marketing synergies. And what they hope to do with this deal is reduce the costs at the Tropicana Entertainment Entity uh, by about $40 million and basically take their purchase multiple down to like the five to five and a half times EBITDA range, which is quite attractive. So it it does make sense for El Dorado and uh, gives them some cost savings opportunities. Gaming and leisure properties. This is the partner with right. El Dorado Resorts that is making this deal. They are that is a real estate investment trust. They have been on the acquisition trail as well. They bought Pinnacle Entertainment back in 2016, right? That was nearly a two billion dollar deal. Right. So basically, they they own the real estate of both Penn National Gaming and most of Pinnacle Entertainment properties. Pinnacle itself is being acquired by Penn National Gaming in terms of the operations in the second half of this year. But as you mentioned, Gaming Leisure Properties is a REIT. Uh, They have uh, the real estate assets here. So basically the way this deal works is that uh, El Dorado is paying about $640 million for the operations and that uh, Gaming and Leisure is paying about a billion two for the underlying real estate. So you're really having kind of a separating the real estate from the operations in this combined transaction. All right. So where does all this money come from and is it money good? In other words, why would you want to be buying if someone is supposedly as smart as Carl Icahn is selling? Right. So there's no doubt that Atlantic City has been a challenging market. Uh, The two casinos opening up this summer, the Ocean Resort uh, and the uh, Hard Rock Properties, I think could galvanize tourism, but they also come at a time of adding capacity to an already crowded Northeast gaming market. So I think the way El Dorado thinks about this in Atlantic City, which again is only 40%, of the cash flow of Tropicana Entertainment is they probably increase the EBITDA from getting some cost savings. They don't deny the fact that that particular market is challenging. Now, this could change if uh, the Supreme Court authorizes unrestricted sports betting across the country in New Jersey and elsewhere. That could create a traffic driver that heretofore has not existed in Atlantic City. Based on your knowledge of the industry, do you believe that that is what many investors are betting on, this unrestricted sports betting? That's certainly a part of what the uh, M&A interest in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey has been about, been about. Now, if you look at Atlantic City, they had about 12 casinos at peak. They're down to seven. This summer, they'll be up to nine again with two new openings. So we've shaken that market out already. We've cut it almost in half, and it's much healthier today, albeit on a much smaller scale. Two new properties opening this summer depends on whether or not they'll drive enough traffic to the city through entertainment to galvanize tourism and increase overall results. But there's no question the Northeast Mid-Atlantic gaming market has become quite crowded with all the expansion throughout the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast. On a scale of, I'll do this on a scale of one to 10, <laughs> if, the, if, the, if the court does not allow sports betting, 
How challenged is this market in the Northeast on a scale of one to 10? 10 being really challenged. It's a challenging market compared to any prior time period. You've now got 12 casinos with 10 more to come in Pennsylvania. Uh, You've got six casinos in Maryland. You've got more casinos opening in New York State. So it's a crowded market. I think sports betting would certainly give some incremental tourism to places like Pennsylvania and Atlantic City. But Atlantic City is now just one of several destinations in the Mid-Atlantic, which is why about half the casinos there have already shut down. Now, we, we, we'll we see what happens next, but I do think the Supreme Court is likely to allow for sports betting. I do think that's beneficial to Atlantic City, but I certainly think uh, El Dorado Resorts has its eyes open in terms of the historical challenges there. All right. I can't let you go without giving giving us the lowdown on Wynn Resorts and sure. what's happening with the Steve Wynn Empire. So uh, Wynn Resorts, which, by the way, did pre-announce at least January, February results. They're having a good quarter. Doesn't detract from the fact that that company has a number of challenges. A lot of the recent drama has centered around the fate of their property in Boston, Wynn Boston Harbor, which could be renamed. It could be sold to another operator. There was speculation last week that either MGM Resorts or another company might try to take over that license. Uh, and so because of the ongoing questions, even with Steven having sold his stock, resigned as CEO, uh, and no longer being either an officer or board member, there's still ongoing scrutiny of the suitability of the other officers and directors as it relates to that Massachusetts gaming license. I have a feeling you're going to be very busy and you're going to keep us <laughs> up to date on all of this. Thank you very Happy much. To do that. Brian Edgar, our expert, really, whenever it comes to gaming and lodging, senior gaming and lodging analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Remember to follow him on Twitter at Breaking Call. It's actually, actually, Agronomics now, believe it or not. Agronomics. That's breaking I, news, yes. Yeah, so Twitter handle is Agronomics. Agronomics. We thought that sounded better, so. And it does. And I'm going to follow <laughs> you right now as a result of that. And- Is the stock market overvalued or undervalued? Let's find out. Let's ask Jack Ablin. He is the founding partner and chief investment officer for Crescent Wealth Advisors based in Chicago. And you can follow Jack on Twitter at Jack Ablin. That's A-B-L-I-N. All right, Jack Ablin. Overvalued or undervalued? Make the case. Actually, near term, it's it's undervalued. If you look at uh, one of the brute force measures that I like to use is just the total return of the stock market, S&P 500, against the cumulative growth of dividends and earnings. Um, It shows that the market is probably about 5 to 7% undervalued if you uh, assume that the earnings we're expecting for the next four quarters and the dividends we're expecting for the next four quarters will will play out. Um, so near term, I think that's a, that's a good thing um, because we did start the year about 18% overvalued. And I think between the market coming down and earnings expectations coming up, um, things have, have kind of settled out near term. Long term, that's a different matter. You know, if you look at the uh, Schiller's uh, index uh, relative to earnings over the last 10 years, or if you look at a price-to-sales ratio, um, that would suggest negative 
uh, returns for the next annually for the next three years. What is competing for investors' money? Is it bonds? Because I'm looking at the uh, 12-month dividend yield on the S&P 500. We're just under 2%. Let's go 1.94%, but let's call it just under 2%. Heck, you can do that in a one-year treasury. Yeah, that's it. Um, you can. In fact, uh, you know, two years starting to get pretty compelling uh, as a quote-unquote money market alternative. Um, but um, interest rates longer term still seem to be below where they ought to be long term. So if you look at the 10-year Treasury at 2.8 and change, historically that 10-year tends to track nominal GDP. Uh, and last time we calculated nominal GDP at the end of last year, uh, that number was about 4.1. So clearly we have another 100 basis points or so to move to the upside uh, to get to what we'll call kind of long-term fair value. Um, and I think that can unfortunately constrains the Fed, uh, quite honestly, because what we find is that that 10-year Treasury isn't really tethered to Fed policy. It's probably more closely linked to what's going on in Europe than Japan. And they're still pedal the metal. Well, but Jack, let, let me let's just make the case, right? Someone comes along and says, you know, I understand what you're saying. This all makes perfect sense, but you know, if I can get more than two percent in a treasury and not pay state and local taxes on it, uh, then and that's money good. Then you're telling me, well, you know, maybe I'm going to get a pop when it comes to the stock market. What kind of returns are you looking for in stocks in order to make that more appealing? Yeah, I think the, it's a good question because near term, you know, we could maybe get single digit uh, gains um, if you, and, and that's cumulative um, for the next 12 months. So nothing really exciting uh, here at home. Um, I don't think necessarily the bottom's going to fall out unless, of course, all of the data supporting the stock market falls by the wayside. But the economy appears to be pretty strong. So, yeah, I don't think that the uh, the stock market is certainly a table-pounding uh, near-term buy. Um, but, um, you know, I think bonds still have to get a little more interesting uh, yield-wise um, relative to longer-term benchmarks to, to you know, uh, really prompt us to, to shift out of equities and into more of a bond focus. All right. So are there specific industry groups that you would be looking to for greater capital appreciation? Yeah, I think that in this environment where we're taking what is a, you know, call it a 2% donkey and beating it into a 3% or 4% racehorse, depending on, you know, how much we can accomplish with uh, tax, uh, the, the tax reform, plus some infrastructure, maybe something else, then I think that the the value-oriented sectors, the industrials, financials, uh, basic materials, dare I say even energy, um, could take more of a leadership role versus tech. Um, I think the first quarter, what we're trying to do is adjust to the new tax regime. Um, and, um, you know, there are some bigger beneficiaries there. Financial, certainly uh, a huge beneficiary, um, but also technology probably benefiting from both taxes and maybe the increased investment. But I think once we kind of play out the uh, first quarter results and look beyond here to the rest of the year, then I think um, investors are going to want to look at the the 
economic uh, environment, and I think the value-oriented sectors will tend to lead the market. Okay, but have, all right, so, and, and Jack, you know, I always challenge you on this. Let's say someone comes to you and says, boy, you know, I have Netflix. Bought Netflix because my family spends all their time glued to Netflix. I'm paying the monthly subscription. The stock is up 60% year-to-date. Does Jack Ablin say, take a little off the table and put some into energy, industrials, and financials? Or do you say, stay with what's working? If this is the kind of market that we're in and we're getting 60% year-to-date returns on a stock that is burning through cash, it's that kind of market. Yeah, and the funny thing about Netflix, and I will say, you know, let's let's you know, if if we didn't have to take taxes into consideration, which is, I think, keeping a lot of investors probably glued into some of the names that have been working over the last couple of years. But if if taxes weren't a consideration, I would say, yeah, let's take some of that off the table and let's diversify it into into areas of the market that would benefit if we do get uh, increased uh, economic growth here at home. Remember, the reason why, in many respects, the reason why investors love uh, Netflix, and they probably like Amazon for the same reason, is that those are all weather stocks. You know, Netflix is going to add subscribers, and they're going to continue to push the bottom line no matter what goes on uh, in the economic environment, no matter what kind of tweets that we hear or headlines, whereas, you know, it takes takes a lot of courage to buy, say, uh, you know, a Kroger or, uh, you know, uh, something, you know, another, uh, uh, the banks nowadays or some of the other industrials um, that really do rely on improving economic conditions. Right. Uh, and it, what, what is the, the one investment you would not touch right now, Jack? Boy, and not touch. Probably, I would say gold. Um, gold is just not behaving the way uh, the that um, it has in the past. Um, historically, it's been a great diversifier that zigged when everything else has zagged, and it just hasn't worked out this year. Um, and I think there are probably other alternatives, perhaps um, maybe even energy or a ma- maybe even master limited partnerships could serve that that purpose uh, and do it in a way that gold can't. Remember, gold it gets undermined, if you will, when rates go up because the financial kind of, assets yeah. and real assets are, are kind of competitive. we got to leave it there. Jack Avlin, he is founding partner, chief investment officer, Crescent Wealth Advisors. Follow him on Twitter. In a note to clients, Scott Miner, the uh, head of investing for Guggenheim, has said that there's a chance of a sharp recession and a 40% decline in stocks that is looming. He says the worst of the damage would start in late 2019 into 2020, and he specifically called out corporate bond defaults. He said that increases are likely as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates and companies struggle to pay off record debt levels. Here to help us understand the role of corporate debt in this market is David Shane. He is the managing partner for Kennedy Lewis Investment Management. And uh, also uh, joining me here in our 1130 studio is uh, Sri Natarajan. He is our Bloomberg debt reporter. Gentlemen, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, David, uh, why don't you begin and give us your thoughts on the role that corporate debt is currently playing and 
its size in the marketplace so that we can understand how important it really is. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, corporate debt markets today are larger than they've ever been. Historically, uh, total corporate debt today is 100% of GDP. It's an all-time high. Uh, so something that we obviously need to pay attention to. Um, fiscal policy, recent fiscal policy in terms of tax changes uh, will continue to pressure the Fed to raise rates. Uh, so we do see pressure as it relates to uh, rising rates uh, that will ultimately affect um, much of the corporate debt market today. When you look at the overall yields today, they're, they're, they're quite compressed uh, relative to historical standards. So uh, we do see that uh, as we look out and specifically in the high yield market, we do see um, some of the maturity wall issues in you know early 2020s combined with tax uh, changes that are, are being implemented in terms of the interest deductibility uh, for some of the more levered uh, corporates out there, we do see uh, some real disruption coming. I think, um, Pim, from my perspective, when you see the likes of uh, Guggenheim and PIMCO and TCW send out warning flares, it's kind of important for us to sit up and take notice. These are big players in the corporate debt market, and effectively the cries are coming from inside the house. And that is why I think everyone's trying to figure out that when Scott says maybe the next recession, which could be 12 months down the line, 18 months down the line, could be driven by corporate debt, that's reason to be worried about. Because also remember that since the last recession in the 10 years that have elapsed, we have seen an explosion in the corporate credit market. And I think this is probably the time in the cycle, and maybe David could address this, is uh, you know where we see Maybe with the smaller companies already, issues are starting to pick up. Are we seeing a uptick in Chapter 11 filings? And is that what sort of gives us a broader signal to what might come down the pike uh, in a year or two from now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we definitely see that. We're starting to see, uh, if you look at the rolling three-month Chapter 11 filings over the last several months, you're starting to see an uptick, uh, especially as it relates to smaller companies. Um, I'll just note that when you look at the new issue market for high yield in the last month or so, You've seen at least uh, 12 to 15 corporates uh, where they've issued paper, where paper is trading below 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, so the new issue market is starting to get a little shaky. Um, and then I think as it relates to um, sectors that are in secular decline, um, whether that be wireless, um, auto rental companies and autos in general, you know, retail hospitals, et cetera, uh, there's a huge amount of debt in each of those sectors. So you've got a secular decline happening. Uh, at the same time that they're going to be trying to figure out uh, how to refinance their structure and uh, and and then again deal with some of these uh, interest deductibility issues that I mentioned uh, coming in the early 2020s. Well, David, you you at uh, Kennedy Lewis, you raised 250 million dollars in November, right? That's correct. For a fund, that fund is destined for distressed debt, um, right? Uh, yes, we define ourselves as opportunistic credit managers, which includes a, com a component includes uh, distressed debt. That's right. Okay, and you got five years to invest this money. That's correct. So, are you waiting? We are. We are waiting to a large degree, but we, to uh, we we do have some sectors that we identified that we think are uh, very attractive now. Um, we are focused on the middle market space where there's less um, we think competition. Uh, for uh, players like ourselves that can deliver capital structure solutions. Um, so some of the sectors that we like and that we're focused on are, are the animal care sector, as well as uh, you know the power markets in Texas. Uh, there's been uh, real disruption in the power markets in Texas. We, we think the supply demand imbalance uh, in Texas is coming into play. And, um, and so a lot of the high cost coal companies that are coming out 
uh, of the market there. They just can't compete with natural gas where it is. So we do like um, some sectors there, and we are putting dollars to work in. in what those kind sectors. of yield does it have to offer you in order to be attractive? For, for our fund in particular, we are targeting a 1.5 times money multiple over a five-year period of time, which equates to roughly a mid-teens yield, uh, and we are finding those opportunities uh, in those sectors. But help us understand one thing, David, when, uh, and maybe this is the reason for it. When we talk to the bigger distress firms right now, all of them are complaining about how there's so little to do. Is that a reason why we're seeing sort of an uptick in al almost manufactured events? You know, the CDS clash, which involves Blackstone, a bunch of hedge funds, even Goldman, that has gripped everyone in the market, Windstream, and other scenarios like that where people are making arcane legal arguments to win returns. Is that just a result of there's very little else to do, so you have to make stuff for yourself right now? Yeah, I, I believe that's 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 partially the case, absolutely. I think you know a lot of the uh, large uh, cap credit players um, have found that you know they need to be focused on um, what we call, you know, sort of binary outcomes on technicalities, right? Within, you know, focused on loopholes within legal documents. Um, you know, they're forced to put a lot more dollars to work in any one particular situation, and there's not large scale distress, okay, that's happening in the market today. So those opportunities are, are fewer and far between, and then they're for, they're they're forced to to focus on these these CDS uh, issues that we've we've seen in, in names like Hobnanian. Just to go back to your point earlier that the total amount of corporate debt outstanding is greater than U.S. GDP. That's, that's correct, including investment grade and high yield. Okay. If you get a big move in interest rates, that's going to make a lot of that paper much less attractive, even if those debts are wonderful and the companies continue to pay. Is that, that's, is that that's a fair statement? That's absolutely right. And we've seen that already this year. With respect to investment grade returns as well as high yield returns, they're both negative on the year. Okay. The, the reason I go there is because a lot of times you have to separate whether someone wants to be an investor and hold the paper versus whether there is an intrinsic problem with the company that has borrowed the money. In today's marketplace, you can have a bunch of people rushing for the exits and the company's still fine. That's right. That makes it must make it difficult for you. Well, I think I think in some ways we see that as an opportunity. I mean, we have outflows in in high yield uh, year to date this this year that we haven't seen in in, right. in many years. So you know we do get a baby with the bathwater scenario in some, and that's when you come in, and we try and be not opportunistic. We focus on the areas that we think we have core expertise on the sectors that we think we're good at, and that's when we come in. Thanks very much, David Shane, managing partner, Kennedy Lewis Investment Management. My thanks also to Sri Natarajan. He is our Bloomberg debt reporter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.